Welcome back to Illuserville, folks. Um, I'm in the Trans-Pecos. This week's episode is brought to you by a bottle of U-Ball Añejo Mezcal. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Where are you, Tyler? <laughs> I am coming to you from Dallas, where the sun is shining for the first time in what feels like forever during <laughs> what has been maybe the longest month of January known to mankind. Well, I, I don't know if anybody else feels that way. I feel like it's like the 49th or 50th day of January this year. <laughs> uh, I always think that one of the key secrets to loving Dallas is getting the hell out of it from time to time, <laughs> which both of us seem to be able to do. So, yes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, what'd you see this week? Gosh, lots of news uh, going on. Um, out there this week, and I don't really know where to start with all of it. I suppose the biggest hullabaloo locally has been um, the council sort of mo moving forward on increasing the amount of the bond and tentatively setting a date for the bond election and making the mayor really mad in the process. <laughs> I didn't see the mayor's reaction. What 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 was it? Well, so the mayor um, was uh, in Davos, Switzerland, attending the World Economic Forum because he's very important and um, he goes to where important people have meetings. And they I don't there believe was a, any Dallas mayor has ever gone to Davos before. Well, so. This is the thing that Dallas mayors clearly should have been doing all along. Um, so he's been in Switzerland. Um, there was a council meeting that was uh, scheduled on the 17th of January, so last Wednesday. Um, but the mayor was in Switzerland during that meeting. And so he postponed it until the next or there wasn't a meeting scheduled for the 31st of January. And so he said, well, let's just have the meeting on the 31st of January. Um, several members of the council um, said that they wanted to have the meeting anyway because they wanted to increase the bond amount and move closer towards setting a date for the election. And so they had a special meeting, special called meeting last Friday uh, at two o'clock Friday afternoon. That I attended. When the mayor... Uh, and the mayor was not able to attend because his flight was still coming back from Switzerland. And so he called it in his newsletter, Silly Calendar Warfare. Um, and said that the, the council members who had asked for the meeting to be moved um, called it, quote, this whole rigmarole about scheduling the Friday meeting was motivated by politics and trying to push what he calls a false narrative, a nonsensical narrative pushed by people with ulterior political motives about my attendance record as the presiding officer of Dallas council meetings, which to be completely clear has been over 90%. Oh, I did see him make the 90% claim, which I think is false. 90, I mean, that seems like a lot. It seems like he is gone a lot. And we do know that when he does go to meetings, he doesn't always stay for the whole meeting either, right? Certainly, so, in his certainly in his first term, there he was not there much. 
Medrano was actually complaining uh, about this. And we the don't other really day. see him out a lot. Yeah. Medrano was complaining about this yeah. the other day that as mayor pro tem, he had to actually run a ton of meetings because Eric was nowhere to be found. Well, so the mayor is basically saying that they're trying to make him look bad, but occasionally Dallas mayors have to do big things. And yeah, council importance, but so is it also important to go hang out with bank presidents and other world leaders in Switzerland? You know, um, I'm less mad about Switzerland than I think some people are. Um, you know, Council didn't want him there anyway, you know, <laughs> they, they work better when he's not there. Um, I saw Richard Fisher wrote a, a letter to the editor saying that Johnson did the right thing by going to Davos because that's where all the important people are. And Dallas has been, is you know, has much more clout because Johnson went to Davos. I, I find that very funny. I, it also brought to mind Richard Fisher's unsuccessful Senate bid from many years ago, where he would conclude every debate or public appearance by yelling Spanish. There's something about that guy. He can speak Spanish really well, but he yells when he speaks Spanish. It's all the the big joke. You know, he all the, these Latinos feel like he was just yelling at them. Um, Anyway, I went to that. Uh, I, I went to the special called meeting. Um, I don't know who the signatories were for the special called meeting, other than one of them was Paula. Um, and it's interesting to me. I don't think she's totally. I, I don't think she was totally convinced, at least at first, that they should increase the uh, amount of the bond. Um, and. Uh, I think she came around by the end and voted for it. Um, but the it, it was a special called meeting. Really hard to understand why they didn't have it on Wednesday when it would have been a regular agenda meeting, even if it's called by the council members. The way the calendar works, the the, the council has to adopt the calendar. And it always adopts a calendar that takes the fifth Wednesday off. If there if there is a fifth Wednesday in the month that you take it off. And so if Johnson had tried to move the meeting to the 31st, even though he has the agenda power as mayor, that actually would also have been a special called meeting and council members would have been under no um, requirement to attend. Is a really, I didn't like the meeting very much. Um, because we had all those of us who are advocating for bond stuff. I'm advocating for the housing part of the bond package. Um, but there were tons of people there for parks. Um, you know, people have all their different projects that they want. And, they, and people had signed up to speak. And council did not take speakers at the beginning of the meeting uh, because they feared that they would lose a quorum if, if, they, if they sat through the speakers. Um, I, I, I found that explanation really trolling. Um, I don't think it's true for one thing. I think a council member who's there and who gets up and leaves because people are speaking, I, I don't, I've never seen that happen. You know, I, I don't think. That's that not great. Well, and you probably should have scheduled a meeting on a Friday if you were had a time 
Friday afternoon at two o'clock if you were worried about getting out of there for dinner? So I listened to um, as much of it as I could before I had uh, obligations that evening. And I just sent all the council members an email with my rationale for why we need 200 million in housing. And one, one of the things that people have, for instance, um, uh, Chair Ardwall from the, the Bond Task Force has argued is that the we shouldn't put money into housing because there aren't specific projects identified. And I think that staff finally did a decent job of explaining to council that you can't do it that way. You can't identify a project and then make the project wait on a bond election and then a sale of the bonds. Um, and it's not the way anybody else does it either. You know, when Austin passed 200 million several years ago, and then they've, they've added to that since then, it, you know, the, it's just a process of applying with a different project. And then it goes through um, rigorous underwriting to make sure that it's the kind of project we would want to fund. Also, the council gets a look at each one of those deals. Like it, it's not a question of you're going to lose control. And it's really not a question of you're duping the voters. The, 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 the voters can look at the underwriting standards already and decide whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I, but some of that I think is probably responding to criticism from folks that have been on the right about sort of feeling like that, you know, this is just uh, going to increase the burden on taxpayers and uh, they want all this extra money that they don't know what they're going to spend it on, et cetera, et cetera, when we're okay with that in other ways. You know, the morning news had that whole editorial about, you know, the bond being really important, but to not waste people's money. Um, yeah, they're, it, not, they're not listening to what they, staff is saying. What staff no. is saying is that the capacity has increased. And when they say capacity, they mean capacity without a tax increase. Um and so that's that is a willful misunderstanding of what's being argued about. Um, the other thing that I mentioned to council in my uh, terse email to them after sitting through hours of that meeting, not getting to speak, um, was I sent them the there's a website for the 2017 bond package. If you Google Dallas 2017 bond, you'll find this website. And it shows right up front on a dashboard how much of the bonds have been sold and how much have been actually invested in projects. And it is just over 50% from a 2017 package that was supposed to be completed, all projects completed by December 2023. So, and, you know, Ridley was worried at the meeting about the uh, connecting laterally to the Mill Creek drainage structure, which is very important. It's how neighborhoods are going to take advantage of that drainage structure. <clears throat> and that's a 2012 bond program package, a project from the 2012 package. And, you know, it's just way, way, way behind schedule. So what I said to the council was, look, stop lying to the voters and saying that you're going to spend all this in five years, which is what we always say. So we're going to we're going to deploy all the, the money in five years. Just have a more realistic estimate. Say it's eight 
And then the city's CFO is going to look at eight-year deployment and project out, and the bonding capacity will be even greater at that point. And it gives you more flexibility about when to do the project so that you can time the credit market. Well, and that's, you know, I guess one of the things I was curious about in, in reading, you know, some of that conversation from Friday's meeting was about when to have the election, which we've talked about on Loserville before, that it seems like a majority of the council is in favor of having the bond election uh, in May, where other members um, would like to have it in um, November. One of those um, rare occasions saying, well, where we need I'm... to have it. One of those rare occasions yeah. where I'm agreeing with Kara. Well, and that and the whole conversation about you know well we need to have it in May because you know these are like shovel ready projects and people need to get started on them as soon as possible. I think to your point, if we haven't spent half of the funds from the last one, you know, does it really make any difference of doing it in May versus November? So they asked staff why May is important, and staff's response was that they have momentum. Which I think I it's don't just know not what true. momentum means in this <laughs> in that usage, um, and I, you know I think the 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 lack of completion of the 2017 projects really undercuts staff's assertions because the other thing that staff was saying, um, uh, Assistant City Manager Robert Pettis, who used to be the Public Works Director, um, said that they they need. Um, they're at least half a billion for streets so that we can maintain zero degradation. It's actually zero net degradation. Obviously, everything is degrading all the time, thanks to entropy. Um, but it, <laughs> it, it, he, it, these numbers don't add up because he said, he also said we need approximately 280 million a year to achieve zero degradation. And some of that comes from the general fund. So it's a combination of capital plus uh, O&M projects. And, but we know that we've only deployed about 50% of the streets package. It's, it's proportional to the rest of the 2017 bond. So either we're not at zero degradation, or if we are, it's a lot cheaper than staff is making it sound. And I'm, I'm focused on that because I'm encouraging council to move streets money into housing. I think that's the best place to to find savings. Yeah. The other sort of conversation about um, the delay that I, I saw that they talked about was sort of the election cost and what a potential election would cost that if they did a, a one in May, it would cost the city six hundred to nine hundred thousand dollars while doing one in November would cost, uh, according to City Secretary Billy Ray Johnson, two point two million dollars. Now, but because here, here again, I guess they're saying it, because there'll be more polling places. But it, we're going to have to vote in November on the charter already. Right. That's the thing. November is a sunk cost. So there's no question that May is way more expensive for the city. And truthfully, we've never been able to run a bond election for less than a million dollars. So I, I really don't know where Billy Ray is getting those numbers. Yeah. Uh, the In the additional capacity, I guess we should say, did it, it, they've increased the amount that the bond is calling for from what was it 1.1 billion dollars to 1.25 billion dollars that's right 
and this, uh, this is what always happens in bond arguments. The city manager strategically waits until he sees where people's priorities are. And then uh, suddenly there's a little bit more capacity. Mm, to make people happy. Huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you wait. And his his strategy is to wait until disappointment has set in among the council yes. members and the advocates so that when their projects then become partially funded at a little better number than they thought they were going to get, maybe they'll be happy. I it, we if prefer it's, that if in, it's a, yeah. Yeah. College admissions is under promise over deliver. Yeah. <laughs> well, this and is more like uh, this is more like demoralize and then <laughs> give half a loaf. Um, and if it sounds like it doesn't work on me, it it, it never did. <laughs> Same thing happens every year, every year in the budget, the annual budget, you know, right at the end, city manager somehow finds 20 to 40 million dollars in extra anticipated revenue. The, the couch cushions. <laughs> hey, while we're talking about um, fun things related to bonds, uh, did you see the news this week about the council approving $55 million in bonds to pay off lawsuit damages? I did. <clears throat> yeah, so this was, uh, what, $55 million in bond money that the city of Dallas owes Trinity East Energy? Um stemming from a 2014 lawsuit in which a prior city manager had agreed to, or we took money from Trinity East Energy to lease 3,500 acres of land in Dallas for drilling purposes, but then also said we couldn't drill in parkland. And so the whole saga is in 2012, um, we took $19 million from Trinity East, a, a drilling company, which no longer exists, I think. I think they they died. Um, and it was a, as part of a secret deal. Council never knew about this deal. Um, and it was negotiated by a guy named Mark Diebner, who is now retired, but who was the city's aviation director after he pulled this stunt. And then Mary Soom is the one who actually signed the letter and did the deal with Trinity East. And Angela Hunt and um, Scott Griggs got wind of this somehow. Somebody, somebody in the organization tipped them off. And they filed very specific requests with Mary Soom for anything having to do with gas drilling. And she finally had to, to give the council the update that she had done this totally illegal secret deal. I mean, for, first of all, doing a deal like that is way beyond her authority um, under the charter and under the council rules. And so that that's in, in and of itself illegal. But the other thing that she did is she promised them leased space in parkland, which back in 2012 and 2013 under our previous drilling ordinance, was black letter law illegal? You couldn't drill in parks, and we still don't let you drill in parks. The new updated ordinance doesn't allow for it either. So, when all that came to light, you would think that council would be mad and fire Mary soon. 
And in fact, they had this bizarre meeting to talk about this deal. I think it was a special call meeting. Um, I was at it and uh, they, um, my former colleague, Von Seal Hill, who's among the nastiest people I've ever met, um, compared Mary Soon to Jesus. And by implication, Angela and Scott were Judas. Um, and so instead of, I mean, they didn't even reprimand her, really. Um, she faced basically no consequences from that deal. Um, and then what happened later was after um, Mary had quit, and after I got onto the council, we passed the drilling ordinance, which further restricted drilling, and then Trinity East's um, specific use permits for drilling came to the council. And we had this big debate about, well, they signed this deal, and uh, it failed at CPC, and so it needed a supermajority at council, and we had plenty of votes to to stop the 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 wells, and um, so that's what made Trinity East so mad. Now, what Scott and I told the city manager to do, which was AC Gonzalez by that point, was to pay back the nineteen million and be done with it, you know, and they just wouldn't do that. Um, I don't know why. I think. Mike Rawlings had really wanted us to give them the SUPs. He His theory was that if we gave them the SUPs, they wouldn't drill. Like the market conditions weren't such that they really wanted to drill. And so um, I, don't, I don't know if he was behind not settling with them because uh, he, he was very adamant that the, those of us who were voting against the, the drilling were being irresponsible. Um, and so I, I think he or somebody in the manager's office or probably both wanted to create a situation where we had a headline like the one that we had this week, where they had to go and, and pay many multiples of the original um, uh, contract price. And, you know, I, the reason I think that also is because I got a call from our friend Dallas Cotherm this morning wanting to get my reaction to this deal. And he thought that well, Scott, our friend Dallas called you. Oh yeah, he's he's going to write about this. Wow. He represented Trinity East, which I don't know why he's going to brag about having lost at CPC and at council as, as a consultant. Well, but it's because <laughs> the libs have taken over. That was remember that was his original thesis was That's the libs exactly took over right. Dallas when yep. we wouldn't let the, them drill in parks. So I think you'll see a Dallas Cotherm byline next week sometime talking about, they may have a few choice quotes from me, but yeah, I reminded him that uh, he, for some reason, he thought Scott and I wanted them to fight it out. And in fact, we had, we were adamant that we just needed to undo this deal, just unwind it and give the money back. It was, it was the fair thing to do. Right. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, the city attorney who did this deal and who managed the litigation is long gone. Um, I've seen the Mary Soon deposition from this case, uh, which took me like a month to get out of the city. And it is among the most self-righteous, unapologetic performances by a witness I have ever seen. They either didn't prep her at all or none of the prep took. <laughs> 
Uh, and counsel, so I really, uh, I think Mary Sue actually then, yeah. I think Mary Sue, in addition to getting us sued, then fucked over our defense. But because I think basically the only way you can win this case, because there's, you know, there's sovereign immunity. So the only way you can really win the case is to make the jury mad enough that they're going to kind of ignore that, you know, it'd be like jury nullification. Um, and so I think probably Mary's performance on the stand did the trick because she, she, her, her, the specific thing she said was that um, she had been like punished for doing such a good job that people were just ungrateful. <laughs> Uh, so council voted to, uh, to pay that $55 million, didn't even talk about it at the meeting, which, uh, well, they talked, I don't know. They, they talked just... a lot about it, but it would all have been in closed session. Closed session. Yeah. yeah. We could have at least had like a public, you know, Hey, this really sucks, but alas, not to be. They should have. I mean, one thing you can always do as a council member is, you know, when you break closed session you can ask for the floor to explain what 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 the action items are and you can even explain why you're doing it um you have to be careful about not exposing uh attorney client privileged communications but the reason that a city council does or does not settle litigation is something they're allowed to share with the public Well, I, I guess to touch on, um, is there anything else on that, Philip, before we move to other city business? No, I, I, I think I've told the whole tawdry story. The, the, the Mary Sue is Jesus thing to, to this day is one of the most bizarre and absurd things I've ever been in the room for. <laughs> Did you see the um, Homelessness Solutions Committee meeting from last week? No, I didn't watch. So there was a homelessness uh, task force committee meeting last week um, where they were discussing recommendations from the homelessness task force. Um, and Kara and Jesse explored interest in looking into a sanctioned homeless encampment in Dallas. Yeah, this is a... Uh... Mendelssohn asked city staff to drop a plan to create a centralized sanctioned homeless encampment that would allow people to camp outside in a fenced-in area established by the city. Uh, this is an idea that's been actually tried in a number of places. And didn't the state government overturn Austin's um, uh, attempt to do this? Was it the state or was it, did they call it, was that part of the public camping thing that the voters in Austin passed? I think the state forced Austin to readopt the no camping rule. Okay. Um, there's a great uh, podcast by the Seattle Times that examines um, over the course of like a year, the city of Olympia, Washington's approach to homelessness. And one of the big initiatives they did was a sanctioned outdoor camping area with some real good infrastructure and whatnot. And it's fascinating to listen to because it uh, 
it it succeeded in some ways and failed in some other ways and and sort of not totally expected successes and failures it doesn't go the way i would have thought yeah i mean i guess in one ways having a centralized place probably makes it easier to have resources funneled in to help people in uh, that situation. But I guess also having a large number of people who are experiencing homelessness, drug, mental health, physical health issues is also probably real hard to manage. Um, I don't know. Um, the So... Like I said, it, it, there are lots of unpredict unpredictable outcomes from stuff like that. The, the, the thing that we've had locally is there was a period of time where at one of the homeless encampments under an overpass on I-30, we did deploy some fences and some uh, porta-potties um, and, and tried to do some of the social service uh, provision in a centralized location. And that went away after uh, a couple of violent crimes occurred at the encampment, including a sexual assault. Um, but, you know, the reaction to it has been to just clear encampments all the time, um, which I don't think is all that valuable um, because it wastes a lot of money and it's just, you know, moving people around. And the other thing is, I think it was an overreaction. Like, how many, I mean, how many apartment complexes have a sexual assault? It's it's like all of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, which, yeah. Other things in the city news from the week was um, there was a proposal put before the council this week to increase permitting fees for the city that they tabled um, until a later date. Um, apparently the city hasn't raised fees since 2015. They had hired a consulting firm uh, back in October that found that the city has been undercharging for its work compared to other Texas cities and says that the department currently has $50 million in cost, but only generates enough revenue to cover 55% of that. This is a this is a troubling story because those fees are always supposed to be set by studies of how much it costs to do the permitting. Like that's supposed to be an enterprise fund that pays for itself. Um, yeah. So I, it, it, this is really bad. And if, if we're really undercharging that badly, it, it, it raises the question of if that's one of the reasons that permitting is so behind. Yeah, like, could they, they just don't have more enough people funds. if they were charging the right amount. Now, as somebody who you know paid fifty five hundred dollars last week for a zoning application for a sign, um, they don't seem low to me. It, it ain't gonna it ain't gonna take any fifty five hundred dollars of staff time to decide whether my client can have an ad advertising sign on the side of the building, you know. So it it and and you get it's impossible to be perfectly precise with these charges, but missing by forty five percent is inexcusable. 
And at the same time, I, I guess, and I'm sure all of this is in the wash, right? When you're talking about property developers, uh, they're making buku bucks as it is, but increasing fees from $100 to $2,800, right, is a pretty significant amount. Yeah. Those it, are the yeah, excavation, no, excavation it, fees. And yeah. the, the big developers um, are much less, you know, they, they have a, an inelastic demand for this stuff and a great ability to pay for it, like doubling fees on a project like the Auberge that's going in at Katy Trail and Knox. The CBRE does not care. It, it, it's just not that big a deal. That's fairy dust. Does it matter? But when, yep. you know, when Melissa and my company tries to develop five units on Ross, yikes, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm worried about how much they're going to charge me just for simple permits. Yeah. Right. And then it, it brings into account, right, the, yeah, if you're already operating on tight margins, as it is, do people just decide not to go forward with projects like that um, to begin with? Not a great situation to be in. No, it really, um, you know, the building official who's, who's the head of permitting essentially for the city um, is is fairly new. And so some of this was dumped on him, but he's going to have to create a solution for this toot sweet, you know, and not let it get in that situation again. It's it, it's it's extremely bad. Like it, I would if it, if I were him, I would use it as an opportunity to find the three people I liked the least in the department and scapegoat them. <laughs> uh, and I have not seen an update on, um, I don't, do they still update that scorecard as to how long it takes for permits to be processed today? It, it's it's so weird. They're still making the same allegation that, that, that it's going really fast and it's going really well. And, you know, I, I sent that over to Dallas Builders Association and the, the Real Estate Council, and they don't agree. <laughs> they think there's something wrong with those numbers. One of the things that they're doing is um, they've moved what's called Q-Team, which was supposed to be the expedited permitting team. They, they've changed the application process where you turn in your application and it goes to all the relevant city departments for review. And then they all sign off on it so that by the time you get to the Q team meeting, um, it's all approved and you get one day permitting. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. It obviously it's not, it's just, it's, it's a shell game. It's partly to deal with the new state law that requires permits to be issued within 45 days, um, which is frankly unreasonable. That's for big projects. You cannot expect the city to be able to competently evaluate plans that fast. So I don't know. I have, I have some sympathy for staff on that. No. We had a real interesting uh, charter amendment meeting. Well, I know that yeah, that's right. Like... You got called. Uh, yeah, you got called uh, down there to the horseshoe this week, right? I did. And, uh, and the commissioner had to go also because one of staff's proposals was to double the size of the city plan commission and maybe have at-large members um, making the case, the absolutely fraudulent case, that the holdup in uh, zoning is due to the city plan commission. CPC? 
Yeah, M Melissa made the point pretty forcefully that, in fact, it's a staff problem, um, that they're the ones who are slow to get things to City Plan Commission. And Mark Reeves, who's a former plan commissioner, was down there to point out that he still sits on ZOAC, the Ordinance Advisory uh, Committee, and staff has canceled something like 40% of their meetings in the last six months. So, that you know, that they're the ones who have to originate all of the uh, zoning ordinances before they go to CPC. So it's a, that's a real bad bottleneck and one that they didn't cause. So anyway, the the uh, task force, I mean, the commission, the, the Charter Review Commission uh, voted unanimously, I think, to um, discard that, that proposal. <laughs> I was down there on my proposal to do away with the council officer positions, the pro tem and deputy mayor pro tem. Ah, because those offices have been stripped of their power. They, they don't mean anything anymore. Um, they literally can't do anything. They can't change the agenda. They, they have none of the mayor's powers. The only thing they can do is run the meeting in the mayor's absence. Um, so it, I I wanted to get rid of them because in the last several election cycles, um, the acrimony over the behind the scenes horse trading about who was going to be in the council officer positions has ruined a lot of friendships and a lot of working relationships on, on uh, council. Uh, and I think we just do away with them. Interestingly, Kara Mendelson had a different proposal, which was to allow the mayor to appoint those positions. But her reason for doing that is the same as my reason for getting rid of them, which is she finds the entire process disgusting and acrimonious. And, um, and, and she's right about that. It's, it's been a very, very negative experience for the council in the last few cycles. So, but very, very interesting reaction from the uh, commission. They um, delayed consideration of both of those proposals uh, until February um, so that they could get more information about how um, it would work and that, that they, they asked some specific questions to the city attorney. But more interestingly, the you know the council in this last election, uh, which was in June, um, installed for the first time ever um, uh, an all-black council leadership. The mayor obviously is elected by the, the city and he's black. And then they put black members in at pro tem and deputy mayor pro tem. And the so the black members of the Charter Review Commission were pretty interested in my timing at suggesting that the officer positions go away. Mm. And did that have anything to do with the fact that they're being held by black people? So I had to um, go and say, look, I totally get how this looks. But I said, believe me, I have been advocating for this for far longer than Tanel and uh, Carolyn have been in the leadership positions. And it has it is no comment on them at all. It's 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 simply a comment on how bad the process is. And I think one of the one of the black members of the commission I have known for some time, a guy named Isaac Steen, and he 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 and I know each other from charter um, 
school fights, different kind of charm, um, and have been on the same side of that. Mm. So he's he's inclined to think that I'm not terrible. But the the other guy didn't know me from Adam, and he was like, uh, "Yeah, that's real interesting timing." <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, this is not how I meant it." <laughs> So there were 123 amendments that have been uh, proposed that the Charter Review Commission is looking through. That's a lot of them. They got rid of a good number um, on Tuesday. Um, stuff that is inapplicable to the Charter has been deemed uh, to be inappropriate for their consideration. Um, one of those was one that I kind of care about, which is the my idea of enshrining the council's five signature memo, which is their tool to override the mayor on agenda items uh, in the charter. And city attorney, for whatever reason, doesn't want to put it in the charter, so they they dump that one. I may I may try to revive it at council. That's the thing about our charter review. The uh, the the commission makes valuable you know, recommendations to council, but council not only can ignore those recommendations, it can also um, have send entirely, entirely new, new proposals to the, to the electorate. They don't have to ask anybody's permission on that. Anyway, fun meeting next... and um, yeah. city secretary showed up because she has proposed a charter amendment that makes it clear that the people who work for her are hired and fired by her and that she can uh, change the structure of the city secretary's office. Um, and she was desperately trying to present this in a way that wasn't going to cause conflict. But of course, some of the commissioners couldn't understand why she needed this without her explaining it more clearly that TC Broadnax has been meddling in her department. Um, and the commissioners, mm. particularly the former city council members who are commissioners, didn't like hearing that at all. And I think there will be a strong push to make sure that all of council's direct hires, which is the city auditor, the city secretary, the city attorney, and the city manager, all have separate realms of authority within their own uh, responsibilities to council. Now, back in 2014, I suggested the council should have to um, pass the budget for the auditor's office separately from the rest of the city. And that was specifically because Mary Soome, as city manager, had become irritated with the auditor and cut his budget. Um, and I didn't want that to be able to happen anymore. So, you know, the auditor, for his part, has full control of his office. The city attorney is pretty clear in the charter, has full control of the city attorney's office. It's just the city secretary's office had this um, unfortunate vagueness in the charter that allowed or has allowed recently TC to, to meddle in her stuff. That's not great either. Not great. It's not great. And um, anyway, it was... It was a really interesting meeting, even though a Charter Review Commission hearing on a Tuesday night sounds like the worst form of, of uh, uh, torture. <laughs> um, the last thing that I had had, on, well, I guess I should say before that, so the next meeting of the Charter Review Commission is February 6th, according to their website, Tuesday, February the 6th. 
I think that's right. And just to follow up on our previous topic, the next bond discussion at council is going to be on the 31st. Uh, so if you want to sign up to speak, the, the sign up is open and I, I am already signed up. And they can mark their calendars accordingly. During the last bond discussion, um, some of the council members were talking about, um, you know, moving housing money over to Dallas Housing Finance Corporation or giving some of it to uh, the real estate council because they were worried that we didn't have a pipeline of projects in housing. Um, and I texted several of them to say, do not give my fucking money to Trek. I need all 200 million. <laughs> and I was like, if you want a pipeline, just the projects that I'm working on equal 200 million. <laughs> um. The last thing that I wanted to touch on, and this is sort of a grand unifying um, one, so bear with us. Uh, it started about a week ago in which, um, and occasionally we do dabble into state and national politics. Um, US sometimes Colin you have Al to. Because sometimes we have to. Colin Allred, um, who is uh, my congressman uh, and who's also running um, to be the Democratic nominee for Senate to face Ted Cruz this fall, was one of three Texas Democrats who voted to condemn President Biden's handling of the southern border um, and said that uh, the Biden administration supports open border policies, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that led to- What's your, sort of what's your take on that politically? Well, so I was I had uh, was talking with some folks about this earlier this week. You know, I don't quite understand. I guess I, what I know the theory that all read is right is that he's prepared for a general election fight against Ted Cruz, and so he feels like the best way to beat Ted Cruz is by appealing to Republicans or folks that are independent, leaning right, to vote for him to make up his majority. I think that's a bad plan and a bad idea um, and think that it does much more to upset people than I think folks are taking credit for. And I think the real way that Democrats would win against Ted Cruz is actually having people excited about voting for Democrats. And that's how I see that it that would actually make life better. Yeah. yeah, that's how I see it also. But I think there's one more political aspect that makes this a very, very bad mistake on Collins' part. Um, he is not going to escape a runoff. He's going to be in a runoff with Roland Gutierrez, uh, a state senator who represents, among other places, Uvalde. Um, <clears throat> that's just, I think the numbers just show that they're, they're going to have to have a primary runoff. Um, he just handed... Every voter south of Waco to Roland. Um, I I think he probably just lost Houston with that. He he probably thinks of Houston as a black city in terms of electoral uh, participation, but it's it's not anymore. And um, and it votes more often with the Valley than it does with Dallas. Um, and San Antonio certainly does, and El Paso certainly does. And pla places where people understand the border are going to see his statement as ignorant at best and, you know, yeah. pandering at worst. Pan well, and that's, pandering you know, to the wrong yeah. people. 
<laughs> and that's the thing that, um, yeah, I mean, if I'm in the Gutierrez campaign, you know, uh, and they don't have a lot of money. And so maybe that's why uh, we aren't seeing this yet. I'm putting TV ads up across the state, putting mailers that say this is what Colin all read. Thanks. Right. Uh, to try and, and definitely prove prove that point. I think this is especially fraught coming at a time in which um, you've got, you know, a couple other things happening with the border. You've got um, ha the House uh, or pardon me, Senate Republicans, United States Senate Republicans, um, basically Mitch McConnell announcing to them yesterday that this sort of deal that they had been kind of working on to tie Ukraine funding to immigration reform was dead on arrival uh, because uh, uh, Donald Trump wants to run on Biden's failed border policies. And so they are willing to allow the chaos that doesn't exist to continue to exist at the border for another 12 months uh, so that Donald Trump can continue railing about Joe Biden not doing anything about the border. Meanwhile, ceding Ukraine to Russia in Vladimir Putin, right? And so if Colin Allred wins the nomination, he's going to be trying to get people to vote for him as a Democrat when the person who's leading the Republican ticket at the time is in lockstep with him, right, on the yeah, board. Yeah, really, how, how do you run against Ted Cruz like, that's very strange to me. agreeing with him? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand how that is supposed to work at all. And then you have the Supreme Court, you know,'s decision uh, this week to sort of um, say that the governor cannot have razor wire down at Eagle Pass, and the governor defying the Supreme Court anyway, which, you know, I don't know, I thought we had the whole debate about the supremacy clause during like the Civil War. I thought that we kind of, you know, decided that the federal government and was. And even before that, you know, um, yeah. the, the supremacy clause grew out of the experience of the Articles of Confederation. Um, yeah. it, be, if it's not clear that the federal government can tell states what to do within the realm of its power, uh, there is no federal government. You know, we're not really a nation at that point. And it's it's disgusting <laughs> that that was a 5-4 decision. That's that's that's. You know, that's four justices who literally would excise clear language from the original Constitution, this thing that they're supposed to venerate or whatever. Um, I, yeah, I don't I don't I don't understand this from from Colin. It just it it reads as a mistake, um, both for March and for November. Yeah. Uh, and then so the Supreme Court comes out with that decision. The governor um, basically is claiming that instead of having DPS be the ones who was putting wire at the border, he's instructing the Texas National Guard to do that, which in his mind gives him the power to do that. Which well, I, don't I mean, know that it's, I quite follow. It, it's. It is now incumbent upon Biden, and I expect to see this next week, maybe even by the end of this week. He's going to have to federalize the Texas National Guard. Um, but it, Biden has played this so poorly from the very beginning. His entire argument is, and based on recent Supreme Court precedent, his entire argument is the feds control the border. That is federal jurisdiction. So why go to court to say we control the border? 
Yeah. Just control yeah. the border and make make Greg Abbott have to sue you. You know, just cut the razor wire. Just get rid of the buoys. What was going to happen? Was Greg Abbott going to order the Texas National Guard to fire on federal officers? This was not. I, mean, I wouldn't happen. put it past him. I don't think that was going to happen. So <laughs> it, do, doing it in court, especially when you have this Supreme Court, is the most non-strategic, stupid, and wussy way to handle that thing. That is just awful. Like, I don't know, man. I, I, you and I are going to both both vote for Biden, and I think it, we're going to encourage everybody else to also. But that, I, you know, as Americans, we are allowed to hate the president even if we voted for him. And I hate yeah, the way Joe Biden deals with immigration. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very stupid. Very stupid. Um, did you see the, you're right. Yeah. Do you see the UT polling on the, the Senate race? Yes. So I thought it was interesting. It shows Colin ahead in the primary, but not getting out of a runoff at all. And, and that I think is, is maybe the most important takeaway. But the, the other takeaway is that it showed that Gutierrez is actually a slightly better November candidate for, for Democrats, which is what I've been telling people all along. And that, um, yeah, that uh, and both of them are definitely within striking distance, at least according to that one poll of Ted Cruz, which I found somewhat surprising. Um, Why? But I don't know. That's Well, I think that's just me being a pessimist. Uh, and, you know, wanting to not be like uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown on the football um, and that, you know, I, I'll it's sort of like when they talk about snow in Texas that, you know, you shouldn't really believe weathermen talking about accumulating snow until you've <laughs> actually seen snow fall. Right. Um, is that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think I think this is going to be I guess it has the makings of being a tough election year for uh, Democrats, a tough climate for. Democrats, uh, and that you know Biden remains so deeply unpopular, even if folks' feelings about him are tied to the economy, which is actually doing really well, and is fine despite all evidence to the contrary. Right? People don't like Grandpa Joe for whatever reason, right? Um, and feeling like. That, you know, again, I would assume Ted Cruz has the upper hand as an incumbent, um, naturally. Um, I was just shocked to see it within two points because Beto, I think, against Greg Abbott, never came within five in any polling. But Greg Abbott against Cruz in a non-presidential year yeah. was 2.6 points. Yeah. So in a presidential year where the indication, at least currently, is that Biden is actually going to spend money in Texas and maybe, hell, even show up here himself, something he declined to do in 2020. Um, I think that that combined with Ted Cruz's unique unpopularity, and I mean, he's unpopular among Republicans. People hate Yeah, that people guy. just hate him. He sucks because he sucks. And, yeah. He really just sucks. You know, the the senators in the Republican uh, minority in the Senate don't like him, don't want to work with him. So I I have a I have a a contrary view, I guess, to the conventional wisdom on Biden and 2024 that I think is backed up by a guy I follow that I think you do, too, named Christopher Boozy. 
Um, and I don't want to hold up Christopher Boozy like Nate Silver in 2016, but he has been remarkably accurate. And his take on this is similar to mine, which is that these negative numbers that Biden has generated that has have been in the media all, you know, everywhere and clearly are bothering the Biden administration um, are generated by um, making a judgment in a vacuum. Um, so I hate the way Biden deals with immigration. I hate the way Biden uh, bombs people without congressional approval. I, I hate a number of things that the Biden administration does. But I'm going to vote for him, you know, and a, a bunch of these polls, I think, are picking up people who are angry about Gaza, who are angry about wage, uh, you know, loss, although that has turned around a little bit also. You, you can have a thousand reasons to be angry at Joe Biden, but when it comes down to nut cutting time, you're voting for him, you know, and I think that I think that 2024 will not be as close as 2020. Yeah, which uh, we had better hope so, right? Uh, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody about this this week too, and, and just uh, you know, all of that is not even to mention like the fact that we'd like to continue having elections in a country, yeah. <laughs> right? And a and, and a that, system that of democracy. issue seems to have some traction. That seems to actually be scaring Republicans. Yeah, as well, especially because Trump doesn't even really try to hide from it anymore, right? That's um. Uh, I mean, he is very much uh, out front and open about the fact that he would like to be a dictator, which is, you know, pretty terrifying. Well, he keeps testing that message and he keeps getting support from his base. So what what how what do we want him to learn? <laughs> um, the. Um, yeah. So, and I guess we should um, also shed a tear for the end of the DeSantis campaign on the podcast <laughs> this week. I love um, it. We just, uh, man, future president Ron DeSantis, he, he just, uh, like Prometheus, you know, um, he may be the new, he's not Oppenheimer. It's, uh, Ron DeSantis is the American Prometheus. My think, I think my favorite thing about this was though, Philip, the day after he gets out of the campaign, he tweets the most humanizing video of all time of him talking to his son about NFL football in which he and his like son have like an actual human conversation. And I'm like, where was this man, you know, six months ago? Like why, well, you know, it's a lot like it's... the Mitt Romney documentary that came out after Mitt yeah. lost in 2012, in which Mitt was this like actual human person. And you're like, God damn it, man. Like, what were you doing? <laughs> well, maybe. Like, why not let people see that I, side? I, for, for his son's sake, I hope that he's a good dad. And so now is a good time for him to go be dad rather than run for president. I was I had been joking throughout the entire DeSantis campaign that he was going to be the person who spent the most money to not make it to Super Tuesday. And I never right. yeah. would have predicted that he would be the person to spend the most money to not make it to South Carolina. Yeah. Or New Hampshire. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's uh, yeah. I um, man, what a quick fall. And for him and I didn't really ever understand this, knowing how popular Trump was, why he even wanted to get in at the beginning. But you almost feel like he has kind of killed himself politically. Like, I don't know that he has a future anymore. Whereas uh, if yeah, he didn't think... run this time, he probably still could have ran again in 2028 and have been fine and maybe even have been the front runner. Yeah, I, I actually wonder if he's safe as um, governor. And now I don't think he has that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, well, I certainly, I mean, you read things. He has definitely, you know, has not made any friends in Florida and has not been involved in the things going on in that state while he's been running for president for some time. And to then now have to try and go back and repair those relationships. Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, tough. Boy, which is a real shame. You know, you just hate to see good people like Ron DeSantis <laughs> fall so far. <laughs> Did you see um, there was a good analysis of New Hampshire? Um, I want to say in The Intercept. I'm blanking. I wish I could remember the publication. So Biden and Trump both won the New Hampshire primary with 54% of the vote. Trump was on yes. the ballot and even went though there Joe Biden's name was not on the ballot, Biden was not on the ballot because the Democratic Party had wanted to make South Carolina the first primary. And for some reason, the New Hampshire Democratic Party bucked that instruction. And so the National Party told candidates not to put your name on the ballot, which Biden complied with that directive, and uh, Dean What's-His-Name did not. He put his name on the ballot, uh, I think, as did Marianne Williams. So there were people actually on the ballot, and New Hampshire Democrats organized a write-in campaign. So Biden won that race big, by big numbers, as a write-in candidate. And it's not clear that a write-in candidate has ever won a primary in either major party. Yeah, I did see that. It's Which it's another the, it's another one of those indications that 2024 may not be as close as people are predicting. Yeah, thinking that it will be, which would be uh, good. You know, we would I don't have less heartburn and high blood pressure to deal with between now and November. And we would maybe think that, you know, 48 percent of our friends and neighbors aren't fascists after all. Boy, uh, somebody you can dream. A boy can dream, Philip. <laughs> well, that's the end of my list. What do you got this that's week? That's all I got this week, too. Yeah. I think we gave the people some good things to listen to. Well, I'll be back next week fully uh, loving Dallas again by having been out of it. <laughs> Enjoy your uh, downtime. Thanks, man. See you soon. I wish every day the sun would shine. Take me to another place in my life. Everything is beautiful. And no one should need no sign of me to rule our soul.
If we could fly away.